Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today, I sit down with a six-time All-Star. He won four gold gloves during his Major League Baseball career. And as a member of the Orioles and the Angels Hall of Fame, ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Gritch. Bobby, thanks for coming on the program. All right, good to be here, Brett. You've come a long way from uh, the Angels locker room when uh, you were about, <laughs> what was that, about 12, 13, 14 years old? I'm trying to think. All right. You were you were in Anaheim. What was your first year, 80, 77? Well, well, my first year was 77, yeah. Right. And then but Dad wow. came over in 82. 82. That makes sense. Oh, that makes me 12. I, that's what I thought about 12. Yeah. So, I remember you no, had this I, spiked hair and you, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you were out of control even then. I was out I of control. You were destined for success because you were, uh, you were, uh, out of the box thinker, man. You were on your way. You know, it's crazy. You get, you get a little bit older and, and you go, for, <laughs> you're right. I was out of control kid. Normal person for a while, out of control. I'm, I'm back to kind of a normal guy again, Bobby. I'm 54. It took me 54 years, and I'm kind of a normal person. Kind yeah. of. I'm growing into it. You know, I'll be maturing here in just a couple of years. I'm 74, so we're on about the same path. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> um, starting things off, I thought this was interesting. You played <clears throat> for a lot of different men. I played for a lot of different men. I played for Lou Pinella, Bobby Cox, uh, current Current skipper with the Padres, Bob Melvin, uh, Hargrove, Jack McKeon. You played. I looked at your career. <clears throat> you came up with Earl Weaver. Right. Uh, you play with Gene Mock, obviously. We're going to get into the, that a little bit in your Angels time. Dad always has nothing but great things to say about Gene. Play with Fergozzi, uh, David Garcia, Johnny McNamara. I remember him in Anaheim. Um, how much does the manager make a difference? Do they get too much criticism, too much credit, or too little? Um, you know, I think that um, depending on the team, it could be a manager uh, just needs to stay out of the way. Uh, but when a team overachieves, and you've seen the kind of talent that that particular team has, and they go all the way or they get to the World Series or they win the division when they never really should have. I think that's when you start to look at the manager and you go, you know, with this lineup and that pitching staff, uh, he did a wonderful job. Uh, you know, so I think you've got to look at it from two different perspectives. Uh, you get you get a team with four 20 game winners like Earl Weaver had and you have the best defensive in, in defense in baseball. And you have clutch hitting like Frank Robinson, Boog, uh, Boog Powell, and Brooks Robinson. Then you kind of look at that and you go, well, you know, Earl kind of stayed out of the way. And George Bamberg did a great job with the pitching staff, uh, possibly. You know, so I think you have to look at the talent and then, and then decide how important that, that manager was. I agree with you. It's there is something to be said for getting out of the way, knowing your role is. Oh, we don't manage one group of guys like we manage another group of guys. We've both been on. <clears throat> well, I know I can speak for myself. I've been on young teams, and I've been on those veteran teams. You know, I played for Lou Pinella. I never played for Earl Weaver. I'm just, 
you know, I'm in that generation that gets to watch a lot of video of Earl Weaver and wonder what it was really like behind the scenes. I know what it was like with Lou and it was nonstop entertainment. Yeah. Um, but you give Lou that group of guys, like you were saying, that group of veteran guys that know what they're doing. He was really good at staying out of the way. I mean, he had his antics during the game, which was entertainment for us. Yeah. But when push came to shove, he knew what he had. And, uh, and, and he just ran with it. You know, I remember sometimes coming in the dugout, Bobby, in, in uh, you know, at 7.05. And Lou would look to me and go, Booney, what we got tonight? I said, Lou, just have a seat and let us let us handle that. And he'd look at me <laughs> and go, you, you're right. You got it. You know, so I've had guys like that. But I've also been on teams where, well, we're having a tough time winning a series. And, and different tactics have to be made. But still, the best ones I ever played for were the guys that just read the room. They didn't treat everybody the same. They were... You know, one group, of, one guy had had there was a certain way to motivate certain guys and other guys you had to treat differently. And, and in a perfect world, you get the same result by two different ways of going about it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, I think it's it's the ability of the manager, if he has the ability to look around the room, know who he needs to communicate with, know who he needs to settle down, know who he needs to kind of keep focused, et cetera, et cetera. And then the ones that they need a little kick in the butt once in a while. So you've got 25 different personalities over the course of the season. You're going to have probably 32, 35 guys in that locker room with the injuries and whatnot. So I think that your point is uh, well taken in that I think a good manager needs to recognize uh, on an individual basis uh, how he can get the, the best out of that each individual player and what that player needs. And then you have to look at the overall personality of the team. Uh, you, you know, my, my, I go back to Baltimore and Earl Weaver was really fairly non-communicative. I mean, I, he didn't talk to me at, at, at all. I mean, he didn't talk to me for my first two years in the major leagues. And he made it really tough on me, really tough on me as a rookie. In fact, in 1976, when I was about to become a free agent, I pulled him aside uh, about August or September. And I said, Earl, do you realize how you treated me as a young player? I said, uh, you know, you didn't talk to me for my first two years. He goes, what? I'm telling you, you didn't. I said, you sent Billy Hunter over to tell me that my sideburns were too long and you needed, I needed to cut them up about a quarter of an inch on the top of my ear there. He, and, then, and then Billy Hunter came over and said, Bob, you got to play a little bit closer on a double play situation because we want to make sure we get the double play. He sent Billy Hunter over to, to talk to me. And I said, we have a player here right now. His name is Jim Fuller. He was a big, good-looking Cheyenne Bodie kind of kid from Rochester. It hit about 40 home runs, but he was fairly insecure and kind of nervous. I said, you know, this is the kind of guy that I think you need to really take under your wing, settle him down, talk to him, get him relaxed, etc." He said, you know, Bob, I really appreciate that. I never really realized that I was like that with younger players. So, you know, but Earl had great teams. Now, you also have to give Earl Weaver – massive amount of credit because he was one of the first to do his lineup according to past performance and which i didn't know and i learned later is that he actually hired a high school kid to keep stats of our of our how how uh, each of our players hit against the opposing pitching and so he would start his he would make up his lineup according to that he would do his switches and his pinch hitting according to that and he was really one of the first to do that uh with the relievers as well we had um uh, we had, uh, oh my gosh, Pete Rickert and Eddie Watt 
and we had Dick Hall. So we had a seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guy. And this was back in 71, 72, 73. And that was unheard of at the time. Typically, the, line, the, the relievers would come in, Raleigh Fingers, uh, Sparky Lyle, uh, whomever, they would come in in the seventh inning and go two and a third, you know, maybe come in in the eighth inning and go one, one and two thirds. And he was one of the first ones to come in and just bring a guy a righty, righty, lefty, lefty. So that was part of his success as well. So, you know, there was two different parts of Earl Weaver that you have to kind of pay attention to as far as and bottom line is he was, he has winning percentage was, was huge. So that's, that's bottom line. That's interesting you say that because today that's that's not out of character. I mean, a lot of teams do that. They do matchups. Uh, in in your day and in my day, and I know you as an everyday player, things that we certain things we like as everyday players. We like coming to the ballpark, knowing you know we know we're in the lineup, and usually we're comfortable with a certain part of the lineup. And that if that switches up on a day to day, at least in my generation, if that would switch up, that was almost a sign. You know, if I was hitting third and then the next day I was hitting fifth at my, my thought was, wait a minute, did I do something wrong when I was hitting third? You know, I know I went one for three, but did you see anything? So little things like that can affect players. Back in the day, you mentioned a guy like Raleigh fingers, that type of player, uh, the star players that you mentioned early with a Frank Robinson, uh, uh, Luke Powell, he would mix them up in the lineup. Like you're hitting third one day, and you're hitting second, or or was it he would a, flip a, a, to the pitcher? To the pitcher, yeah, he would flip flop in third and fourth. So um, I think that what he would do is hit the right hander. Frank Robinson, I do believe, would hit third against lefties, and maybe his vice versa. I can't even remember. All I know is that. He would flip flop the righty to the lefty, so Frank would be third one day, and Boog would be fourth. And the next day, for facing a lefty, it'd be vice versa. So uh, that was about the only thing between those two guys. But he would switch up uh, first and second, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, and it depending on the pitcher. Uh, I would hit anywhere between first, second, fifth to eighth. I don't know if I hit eighth in Baltimore, but anyway. So I I came to ballpark kind of thinking, well, I'm most likely going to be second. But if it's somebody that I have trouble with, I could be like sixth or seventh or eighth, sixth or seventh. So Weaver did that. And, uh, and, and you Mom, know, he wasn't going to talk to you about it. He was just going to say, you're in there. <laughs> wear it, wear it, Bobby. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, it, it's, it's funny. I, I have to tell you the story. This is so hilarious. I'm a 21-year-old kid and I'm playing in Rochester and I'm hitting 383. And I get I get called up. I have. I, I, I get called into Cal Ripken's. He's our manager in Rochester and the locker room kid comes here. Cal Ripken wants to talk to you. And I knew I was getting called the big leagues. I knew it right away. And it was like June 26th or something. So I go in and I sit down and he said, how you doing, Bobby? I said, I'm going to the big leagues, aren't I? <laughs> he said, yeah, you are. I said, awesome. So that was Cal Ripken's dad, you know, and uh, it was, it was pretty cool. So anyway, I packed myself fly into Baltimore the next day, take me straight out to the ballpark, three o'clock in the afternoon, I go to the stadium, never been there in my life. I got my suitcase and I got my, my baseball bag. Where's the locker room? There it is. You know, I walk down this hallway and it says uh, players uh, um, locker room. I start to go in. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody's there. The door's kind of open. I'm getting ready to go in. But I look to my left, it says manager's office. And the door was about, door was kind of ajar. And I look in there and there at the desk, Earl Weaver was sitting there and he was writing some stuff down. I figured it was a lineup or he's working on his, you know, his matchups or something. I just pushed the door open just a little bit. And I just stood there and I just knocked on the frame of the door. And he looked at me and he goes, what do you want? 
And I went, I, 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 I just want to tell you, I just got here. And he goes, is that all? And I said, yeah, that, that's all. And that was my welcome to the big leagues as a 21-year-old kid. He didn't get up out of his chair, didn't come shake my hand, didn't, didn't welcome me to Baltimore, didn't say, dude, you've been hitting 383, man, you're getting great. And they, they sent me down to AAA that year to play second base. I was playing second base every single night. And so uh, I go and sit down, just kind of shook up, like, well, that was a great welcome, right? So then the rest of the team comes in about a half hour later, blah, blah, blah. The lineup card goes up right next to my locker because that was the door out to the, out to the, um, uh, the field. And hitting fifth, playing shortstop, Bobby Gritch. I hadn't thrown a ball from shortstop since spring training about, about March the 31st. And so I thought, okay, my first game at Big Leagues, I'm playing shortstop. He didn't, tell, you know, he didn't say, he didn't say, that was, that was um, June 26th of 1970. I think he talked to me about May of 72. And, and that was my welcome to the big leagues, man. And it was like, unbelievable. I was so intimidated by him. And it was so hard for, I was the youngest kid on the team by far. The next youngest guy was Jim Palmer. I was the only single guy. Everybody was married with three and four kids. It was a very conservative team. And he made it literally really tough on me. And, and I, uh, I struggled to kind of get myself you know, in the big leagues, sort of, you know, get my, get my footing. And didn't, didn't play that great that those two months I was up there. I played okay, but not that great. Anyway, interesting story about, about Earl the Pearl. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was a little side note. Well, it's interesting because I came up, you know, I had Lou early. Lou, Lou and I talk about this too much. Lou to this day is my favorite manager I've ever played for. And I played for a lot of great guys. You know, I love the Bruce Bochies of the world. You know, I got to play for Bobby Melvin. Uh, so there's a lot of guys that I liked to play for. But Lou's far and away my favorite. And But it wasn't always that way. When I got to the big leagues, you know, and I'm a young player and I'm this, you know, I'm the heir apparent and I'm coming and I coming with fanfare. <clears throat> Lou wasn't having it. He didn't care about this little, this young, you know, cocky rookie. He was going to, he was going to test me and he did, man. And it was tough. I was speak when spoken to sit in the front of the bus, shut up. And that wasn't my personality. And I, you know, I, I, I earned a little, I, I earned probably more trouble than I really needed, but I look back on those times. I was a young kid. I was as sure as you could be about, about oneself, uh, but I had a lot to learn and I did learn and I got my butt kicked and I got humbled and I got knocked to my knees and I got back up and I look back at those times and I think, you know, I, I don't know that I'd have it either any other way. I think it, taught me a lot about life it, it, it was a growing up process it was tough love because there was no coddling like you said with earl there was no coddling with lou it was you know he'd send me down because i'd swing at a ball over my head with a runner on third and less than two outs and i'd yell at him you forget how hard it is lou and oh all right you're gonna talk to me that way i'm gonna send you back to the minor leagues so i went through that today's game is different and i often think about the two you know, I think the way I came up, the way you came up, you had to earn everything. Nowadays, it seems as a rookie, it's kind of like, oh, don't say that to him. Don't say this. It's the opposite of tough love. And I wonder if there is a positive to that, because it made me think a little bit and go, well, doesn't it make sense? Let's say you've got a young, star, talented player at mm -hmm. 21 coming to the big leagues and you treat him like he's been there forever. 
maybe that is a better way to make him comfortable and maybe he plays better earlier in the process than us. It was like, all right, we don't care. You mentioned you were hitting 383 in AAA. Well, you know how big leaguers think. They don't care what you did in AAA. It's like right. you've got to show us at this level. Right. And and for a lot of reasons, you know, that's the times we came up in. And I agree with that philosophy. But the new philosophy is not that way. You see how these rookies now, they come to the big leagues and they do whatever they want. And at think- first, as older players, we 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 don't like that. But once you think about the 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 goal behind it is isn't it better to make our best players, even if they're young, feel as comfortable as they can, as quick as they can, so maybe they produce for this team and add to the bottom line quicker? I don't know. It's two different arguments. Yeah, if I were a manager, I would take my own experience uh, uh, into consideration and think about myself, and it would be like, okay, what kind of a manager would you have played better under as a kid coming up at 21 years old? And... um and, and that's the kind of manager that I would want to be if I were in that position. And my conclusion was the biggest, the biggest hurdle I had was getting comfortable and feeling accepted and getting rid of the nerves and uh, getting used to the much bigger ballpark, more people, more media. Everything was bigger, faster, and there was a lot thrown at you that you needed all the support you could get. And so I would definitely take the side of not coddling, but I would certainly be on the side of huge support, communication, everything I could do about making him feel comfortable, calming him down, the nerves. Hey, don't worry about it, man. You're a rook. Just give us your, you know, here's what you're going to do. I want you to play the game. It's just 60 feet. You know, every they throw the same freaking ball, the same distance. That's all, you know, all kinds of good stuff like that to where everything that I could possibly do to calm that guy down. And I firmly believe that is how you're going to get the best performance out of a young player who's who's uh, intimidated and nervous. That That's my own opinion. Well, I'm glad it's not too often. We've had a few, but uh, I get a fellow second baseman on the program. There and, you go. <laughs> uh, we both played it for a lot of years. Uh, first of all, what do you think right off the top? Um, I don't know about you, but the but the sliding straight in and not able to take out the second baseman, I'm kind of offended by it. And I'm not offended by much, but I just think, you know, as a second baseman, we kind of pride ourselves. Where do we make our money? Turning that big double play and hanging in there when that guy's trying to kill us and knock us in the left field. That's where you separate the average second baseman from the great second baseman. Who can turn that big double play with it all on the line in the ninth inning? And I took pride in it. Guys trying to take me out and they couldn't take me out. You might be able to flip me up in the air, but if I did it correctly, you couldn't take me out. Now I look at it, and and by the way, the physicality of the kids these days, 2023, I, I don't know about you, but I always used to size myself up against my peers. And there weren't too many guys I could pick out in my generation that I really thought that guy really plays the heck out of second base. I watch today the physicality of these kids. It's unbelievable that the, the acrobats they, they pull out there. I mean, it is just, and it's different. They're they brought up playing third base, shortstop, second base, and they can play all three, but they're they're really athletic. I want to talk to you about what do you think about that rule? Do you feel like I do, or do you have a different take on it? I have a uh, my my take is that I um, I look back when I was playing, 
And I remember when uh, the guy in front of me hit a home run, uh, quite often the next pitch was going to be at you or up around yeah. your head or something like that. I hit uh, five grand slam home runs in my career. And three of the guys, the next time I faced them, and it wasn't even that game, it was like in another series or a week later when they came out to California or whatever, they tried to hit me in the head because I hit a grand slam on Jim Perry, Gaylord Perry, and uh, Dyer. I didn't, what, I just remember three different guys. And I, I often thought of it, you know, if you strike me out three times, do I get to go out there at 30 feet and throw the bat at your freaking head? I mean, I don't get it. Okay, I, I did, never got the thing about getting thrown at. Uh, I thought it was really stupid, to be very honest with you. And I actually really like the fact that they can't ruin your baseball career and blow your knee out on a double play. I absolutely like that. And I like the fact that our catchers are now protected. Uh, what was that great catcher in San Francisco that just about ruined his career? Posey. Posey. There you go. The Posey rule. I think that to me, I, I'm so glad to see that because – you're going to play 162 games. If you, if you can last 10 years, you're going to play 2,000 games. And so is my career going to be ended June 10th of my 5,000th game when the score is 10 to 3 and there's some 210 hitter going to come in and blow my knee out over, over a run in the middle of my career? It's senseless. And, and, I, and I really am glad that they're protecting their players now. I think the fans love to see their good players and to have a great player have his uh, career in jeopardy over one run in a game. To me, it was like, why don't we protect our players and why don't we make it so these guys can play 162 games for 15 years? And I was all for, in my mind, even when it was back hardcore baseball, I could play hardcore baseball with anybody. Okay. I mean, I would get, I got hit 20 times in, in, a, in one half of a season because I was too close to the plate. And they literally drove me off the plate because I was going to get my career wounded. So I had to get off the plate. But, uh, you know, I took it like anybody and I could take it like anybody. But I just thought to myself deep inside, it's like, this is really stupid. This is like, you know, this is like macho man as, a, as opposed to just being smart. And you have a great product here. You should protect your assets. You want to have these guys on the field every day so the fans can see them 162 games and buy season seats and your, and your advertisers can advertise them for 10 years. And so that was always my feel. And I also really like the fact that these guys, they're facing 97, 98 miles an hour. They're getting a little bit bigger piece across the face. We had a kid uh, uh, just the other day that, that got it right here in the face, our, our right fielder. Um, uh, shoot, I can't even think of his name right now. Uh, he now he's you know he might be in jeopardy the rest of his career. Um, and I also like the pads that guys are wearing. You know, Barry mm -hmm. Bonds is a very good example. He was able to do what he did because of the fact that he did have pads on. And what isn't that incredible to be able to watch that guy hit like that? It was unbelievable. And the only way that he could do that is by wearing some pads so he couldn't get injured. But he was in the batter's box for the most part. And I broke my hand here twice. I lost. I lost six weeks because I took an inside pitch and I broke that bone in 81. And then I lost six weeks. I got hit on inside pitch and broke that bone in 83. So I missed 12 weeks of my career by getting hit on the back of my hand. And so not, and then after my second time, I put some fiberglass in there and all of a sudden it'll never break again, which it never did. But I love the pads back here. I love the pads here. I love the thing up here. Uh, that's that's my deal is protect the players with as much padding as you can possibly get and get out there for 162 games and play every freaking day. 
That is an interesting answer from Bobby Gray. I didn't think I was going to get that because let's go yep. back to when I was 12. Uh, we just came from Philly. And and as a kid, I, I lived such a cool childhood. I mean, I got to hang out with that whole Philly crew. Then I came to Anaheim and I got to hang out with you guys. You know, it was Bobby and Foley. And uh, I got a little bit with Rod Carew and Don Baylor and Freddie Lynn and Reggie. So I had that, that classic, un, you know, just special childhood. But when I thought of Bobby Gritch, I was thinking about this before the podcast. I'm like, what do I remember about Bobby? I remember his sideburns. I remember his mustache. Yeah. And I remember he was kind of a badass. He was always fighting. I always thought Bobby Gritch and Bobby Knopp. Every time there was there was a there was a dust up, you were right in the middle. So so that answer to me is I, you caught me off guard because I thought, no, Bobby's the kind of this this badass that, that was a brawler, and you were a brawler. I, I've seen footage where, hey, you, you mess with Gritch's team, he's going to be in the middle of it, and that was a big part of your uh, that was a big part of your career. I see, I've seen you in dust ups all over the place. Well, I was usually drawn into him. The one I got in Minnesota, uh, Roger Erickson threw at me three times. Okay. He missed me once, and Gene Mock was calling for it over in the dugout. He goes, that a boy, this is the guy we want, because Frank Tanana had hit Bombo Rivera the inning before. So I was the sacrificial lamb coming up with two outs and nobody on the next inning. So I could hear Mock right over here in the dugout yelling at this kid, hey, this is the one we want. Let's get this guy right here. This and I looked over, I go, what? what? What's going on? I didn't even think about it, you know? And the ball went behind my back. And he goes, that a boy, that's the way to do it. I go, that's the way to do it. What, 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 what's going on here? The next pitch was at my ribs. I go, oh, I get it. It's payback for Bombo Rivera. So he missed me with the first two. And I say, well, I'm not going to sit up here like a Cupid doll at a, at a county fair. I got to do something. So I, uh, I said, well, if he throws at me again, I got I to go. You know? got to go get him. So he throws the 2-0 pitch right down the middle, you know, uh, uh, a room service fastball. And I and I'm because I was taken all the way, thinking I was going to get thrown at my head again. And I was just taken. He threw it right down the middle. I'm like, oh, damn. All right. Well, he had his two chances at me. It's over. Let's let's play ball, right? So I get in again. And he throws another ball right at my ribs again. So I looked around, and the catcher kind of took off. And I just had to go. I mean, so then that was that was that was the brawl, you know, that what that I got into. And the other time, I was at second base, and uh, there was a, uh, a Wayne Tollison in, in Texas, but it was a rookie, and we had the team meeting beforehand because it's the first time we're facing Texas during the course of the season. So you always go over the team the first time you're facing them. They talked about this Wayne Tollison, a rookie who was a great wide receiver of football. He had a lot of speed. He was going to steal bases like crazy. Sure enough, first time up in the first inning, he steals second base. Well, over in their dugout, they had a team meeting as well. And uh, they were going over everybody. Then Merv Rettman, who was a teammate of mine in Baltimore, stood up at the end of the meeting. He said, hey, if you get on second base, watch out because Gritch will knock his, he'll put his knee down. And he'll block you out from second base on a pickoff. And so Doug Rader was the new uh, manager there. And Doug Rader got up and said, somebody knock him on his butt. We're playing hard baseball this year. And so first inning, uh, Tollison steals second base. And I went, wow, this is the guy I got I to gotta protect. You know? So I get over close to, the, uh, close to the bag on the first pitch, and he was off pretty far. So Bill Travers, I put on the pickoff like this just to show him the pickoff. And I go back over, and I gave him the whole, the whole bag. I mean, I... I just straddled the bag and I reached out to get the ball. It was pitched. It was thrown right to me. Well, Tallison steps on the bag 
he comes across the bag and he pops me with his elbow right in my jaw and my hat flies off and I drop the ball and I go, I go, I go, what was that all about? And he says, we're just playing hard baseball this year, hard baseball. I said, all right. I said, I got your hard baseball. <laughs> threw the ball back to Travers and Travers is looking at me like, what was that? And I go like this, I go, well, let's just try it again. Like that, he goes, okay, we will. And so I go back over and Travers looks and went, it's a spin play, right? So as soon as he spins, I start running over and I look and Travers threw the ball about 20 feet in the air so I could have a free run at this guy. And I went across and I just freaking clotheslined him and he just went and I jumped on him and, and he tried to grab my legs. And so I'm kind of beat on his, on his back and then it was like 15 guys just dogpile after that. But, you know, I mean, there was no There's your hard baseball. Yeah, that was your hard baseball. So, you know, and I, it's funny thing about that, putting the knee down. I would I would never do it unless it was like the eighth or ninth inning. And it was a, like we had a two-to-one lead, you know, or a two-to-two ball game where the game was on the line. And I had to get that guy off second base somehow. That's And I did it maybe, you know, two or three times a year at the most. And so there was no way I'm going to be doing it in the first inning. But anyway, so that – that's that's two of my brawls i feel i'm i'm the innocent guy there you know i'm just trying to play innocent i just got drawn into it okay <laughs> you got drawn into it i love it 1988 you're the first inductee into the angels hall of fame um and you played there a lot of years you played there from 77 to the end of your career and uh what do you remember about Gene Autry? Because at the time, it was the California Angels. It's since been the Anaheim Angels. Now it's the LA Angels. You work for the Angels uh, uh, currently. Uh, what do you remember about the Cowboy? Uh, he was um, he was great. He loved baseball. He just loved the game. He loved being an owner. Always smiling. Always had a smile on his face. Uh, he would come out to spring training uh, uh, out, in, out in Palm Springs. We'd have an annual dinner with the uh, Chamber of Commerce of Palm Springs. And he, would, he would talk a little bit and uh, go around and meet everybody. And then he would make a point of just about, just about every road trip that we went on, especially if it was an extended two-week road trip, he would come down the second game uh, during the time between batting practice, uh, actually um, – uh, between infield and the start of the game from 7 to 7.30, he would come through and just say hello to everybody and make a point of coming down. He had that he had a beautiful uh, cowboy suit on, you know, a suit with a bolo tie, and he always had a different pair of, uh, of uh, you know, lizard cowboy boots, uh, and he was dressed like a Hollywood star. He was just a great guy, just loved the game, let us play. He never uh, was really that active. He let the general manager do his thing. He let the manager do his thing. But um, – just loved the ball game, and, and he was a huge, huge fan. Another thing is that there was the owner's suite that's still there today. It's just the same as when he was uh, a manager. They didn't change that. It's, that was one of the things that Jackie Autry put into a contract, I think, when, when Disney bought it from the Autrys, and then that, that stays in perpetuity until, until Jackie Autry uh, passes away, is that the owner's suite stays the same. So it's got all these black and white photographs from the 61, 62 team and whatnot when he first took over. It's a, it's a cool, it's a cool owner's suite. And so anyway, I'd be at second base and I'd look up uh, and on day games, Sunday day games, uh, Richard Nixon would come in from the, from the, uh, the Western white house at San Clemente. And he, he was always in a suit and tie, dark suit, and, you know, dark, uh, dark suit with a tie on. 
And G and Ginocchio would be up there in his cowboy suit, and they'd be right there sitting together, and they would be drinking these big tall lemonades with I think a little vodka in it, you know. And 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 Ginocchio would be keeping score. He would write down every single pitch. I mean, he was into the game, and uh, he was he would score keep every single game. And and uh, and uh, Richard Nixon was a big fan. Also, would come down the locker room as well. And so we uh, had a lot of fun with both those guys. 79, first time in the playoffs for the Angels. You and Richard Nixon, what'd you do to him? Yeah, so so uh, Nixon came in the locker room a couple times. And he came over and he was always talking to me and he told me I was his favorite player. He said, I love watching you play, Bobby. He said, you're a California boy. I'm from Whittier. And we'd talk about that a little bit. You know, he was local guy, right, from, from uh, Whittier College right there. And uh, so I got I got to know him a little bit. And I was kidding around with him. Well, in 79, we win the Western Division for the first time in Angels history. We come in the locker room and champagne everywhere. And there was an entrance that if you went if you're from the owner suite, you come down the elevator, you come through the trainer's room and you could walk into the locker room from a side entrance. So there's champagne going all over the place. And uh, Richard Nixon uh, and Gene Autry walk in. And Jimmy Anderson happened to go by like this. And he, he squirted both of them with champagne. You know, and they looked at each other and they went, ah, that was great. So they just kind of walked in more to just sort of revel with everybody. And I saw it and I went, gosh, I got to get Richard Dixon, you know. So I looked for a, a bottle of champagne, but it was all gone. There was no more champagne, but there was a big tub of Budweiser beer that was still there. So I went over and I grabbed a can of Bud and I went like this and I saw a, 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 a photographer, a photographer. And he goes like this, let's get him, let's get him. So I walked over behind Richard Nixon and I popped that bud and I said, I said, President Nixon, I said, this bud's for you. And I poured this can of bud over his head and it went right down that ski nose of his, like <laughs> this, this little stream of beer came off like that. And I'm just, I'm just laughing and he's laughing. And a guy on AP Wire uh, took that photograph and it went all over the wire across the country. And I had friends of mine from the Atlanta Journal, uh, the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Post, all over the place. It was on the front page uh, of a lot of papers across country of me pouring that beer over his head. But it was in a lot, a lot of sport pages, you know, sport, sports pages. And so I have that photograph in my office out there. It's a great photograph. And uh, oh, so here's an added story to that. So that was 79. Well, he and I laughed about it later. You know, it was all in fun. And then he comes about 19, he moves to New York and about 1984 or something like that, or 85, uh, we're in the locker room getting ready for the game. We just got there early, just getting ready to go on the field for batting practice. And uh, locker room guy comes in and he goes, uh, hey, he goes, uh, Richard Nixon's coming in to say hello to you guys. And I went, oh, cool. And so the door opens up and he has a um, uh, you know security guy with him. And, and he looks around and he goes, Where's Bobby Gritch? You know, like that. <laughs> I go, I go, Mr. right over here. He says, come over here, son. And so I walked over to him and, and he put his arm around me like this. He goes, son, he goes, I want you to know I got good. I got more good publicity from that photograph. Of you pouring a beer over my head than any of my press secretaries ever got for me. He said, I should have hired you as my press secretary. So we had a good laugh, and, and uh, it was just good to see him when he was back in New York. And he, he had, you know, his health was going down at that time, but he still was a great baseball fan. Very cool. 
uh, Anaheim, it, man, has it that that stadium's changed so much over the years. I remember early years, it was the Big A. Yeah, it was open. Then they closed it in. Now Disney came in, and and currently Artie Moreno's team. It looks different. By the way, it was as a player my favorite yard to play it. Anytime we're coming to Anaheim to play the Angels, I didn't care. I'm like, I don't know whether it felt like I was coming home, the atmosphere, but whatever it was about, you know, and I still called it the Big A back then when it changed into the Disney. Uh, But but I loved it. Um, It's a great ballpark. I love it too. It's my favorite. I mean, it's awesome. It's just a great place to play. I mean, if uh, I, I just, as soon as I could become a free agent, man, I just, I just begged my agent. I said, please get me out to California. I want to play for the angels. And you kind of went full your, your tenure in Anaheim uh, spanned 10 years and different groups. You know, you started off in the Nolan Ryan years, I believe. Yep. Uh, you moved on. And, and my childhood years was, you know, you had uh crew early uh, Reggie stayed on through the end of your career. Yep. But you had a you had a bunch of different guys coming in that, that last run in, in uh what was it eighty six? Wally Joyner came on the scene. Uh yep. you had Debon White, you know, Mike Witt, a young Mike Witt, an older Don Sutton. So it changed. Eighty two, yep. you you go to the playoffs, you lose to Harvey's Wallbangers. I remember that. I remember it vividly. Then you get to eighty six. I want to talk about that series because it's the Donnie Moore pitch. It's the Henderson home run. And I remember I was a kid there and I was in a suite down the left field line. Yep. And people forget that wasn't the final game. When he hit that home run, it wasn't over yet. You still had, I believe it was game seven to go to. Uh, we that had, just, we, that was game five. So we had two games back in Boston. Right. Everybody thinks when he hit the home run, that was it. That wasn't it. But I remember being down the left field line in a suite watching you guys getting down to that final strike, final out. And I remember a guy next to me, we we're betting like uh, how many, how many, how many hands is Bob Boone going to hold up when Donnie Moore strikes out Hindu right here? Next thing you know, he hits the Homer and it's over. Take me through that in your, in your, at you being a player. Well, let's see. Yeah, that was uh, okay. That's the top of the ninth. And uh, Mike Witt is pitching. Uh, I think we're ahead by, two runs if i'm not mistaken like five to three or something like that or four to two uh anyway uh donnie baylor hits a home run uh and then uh there's one out and then uh dwight evans comes up and uh mike witt gets him out on a fly ball and then uh rich gedman's coming up so now we got two outs uh uh i don't know nobody on um, but now we're, now it's four to three. I think we're ahead by one run and, uh, four to three or five to four or something. And so, um, uh, Jim Mock comes out of the dugout and everybody's booing and, uh, Gedman, uh, had, had gone three for three with a home run, a double and a ball that was about this far from going up over the fence for a second home run, he had hit three rockets off of wit rockets two, you know, almost two home runs and a double. And uh, so he's coming out and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're the manager. What do you do here? And I look back in the bullpen and I saw uh, Gary Lucas was warming up. Uh, I kind of, you know, the, the thing that 
pisses pisses me off really bad is that we didn't have Chuck Finley. Chuck Finley was a beast. Had he had a better September, and here's where I think Mock, in my own humble opinion, was not a good manager. He could have coddled, he could have coddled or supported uh, Chuck Finley the last two weeks of September to where he would have been a tool for us in the playoffs. He he would have been the difference in the playoffs, Chuck Finley. Had Mock supported him and guided him under his wing and settled him down and just got him to throw strikes. Instead, he intimidated him and he made he made him feel comfortable. He yelled at him when he, when he threw a wild pitch and stuff. And it was just the worst thing that I think Mock could have done to a young player who just came up. There's an instance right there that that I don't think was good managing, just my own opinion that I saw. And I've talked to Finley about this since, and he totally agreed with me. He said, Mock was all over my case, man. He said, I was just, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he just did not make me feel comfortable. So let's just say, let's just say Finley settled down and throwing strikes. You bring Finley in to face Gedman, it's freaking over. It is yeah. over. All he has to do is throw strikes. Because Gedman hit like 170 or 180 off left-handers. And so anyway, so he went, he went out to the veteran, Gary Lucas, who hadn't thrown for us all year, Harley. He was with us for a lot long in the season, but I bet he had, I don't know if he had eight innings in, in, in three months. So anyway, Lucas comes in this pressure pack situation against a left-hander. Uh, I talked to Mock about this later at a golf tournament. I said, I said, what was your thinking on, on uh, Gedman there? And, and he said, you know, he said, I've got in my book that he was 0 for 4 off of Gedman two strikeouts, a ground ball, second base, and ground ball the pitcher. He had never hit a ball out of the infield off of, off of Lucas. So that was the matchup. And so he brings in uh, Lucas. I remember playing first base because Wally Joyner had a staph infection, and he was out. That also hurt us. That really hurt us because uh, they, had some, they had oil can, they had uh, Stanley, uh, and then they had uh, uh, um, um, uh, the, the, big, the big rocket. Clemens. Yeah, Clemens. And Joyner from the left side would have put us over. I, I do. It would have helped us tremendously in that series. We missed Joyner. So I, I was playing first base. I look back, and he's bringing in Gary Lucas. And I said, okay, you're the manager right now, Grich. What, what do you do? And I said to myself, I bring in a left-hander. I remember, I remember asking myself that question, and I said, you call it now, big boy. What do you do? I said, I bring in the left-hander to myself. And everybody was booing. And yaka yaka. So Witt goes out and Lucas comes in and he hits Gedman with the first pitch. He was nervous. He was not, he hasn't been pitching much. He wasn't in a slot. He wasn't. So it was just an unusual time to bring in a guy that just wasn't your, he wasn't your closer during the year. He wasn't your go-to guy uh, anywhere in September. You got to, you know, you, you need to use the guys who were in pressure situations coming down the wire for you. And that came through for you when you had a three-game lead with five games to go or whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? And that guy performed for you with, with the pressure on him. And Lucas wasn't, uh, hadn't been tested. And he kind of was put on that pressure spot right there without really being pressure tough, you know, and threw a while, you know, hit him in the first pitch. And so now he's got to go to the right-hander because now you have um, – David Henderson coming up. So now you got to go to uh, our closer, Donnie Moore. Now an added thing here is Donnie Moore had been struggling with a sore arm all second half of the season. And he had actually had a cortisone shot after the game the night before. 
in his shoulder. And you're supposed to give that pitcher 24 hours. And the, the, what it was supposed to be was Donnie Moore gets a shot after the game the night before. He doesn't pitch that day. Then we travel. We go back to Boston if we had to. And then he'd be ready for the last two games in Boston. Well, Mock, he, called, he said, get Donnie Moore up, you know, when he went out to get Lucas off. And, and everybody kind of, what's, what's Donnie Moore doing now? He's not supposed to be pitching today. So Moore's out there cranking it up. Sure enough, he hits Gedman. Now he's got to bring in Donnie Moore, who is 12 hours off of a cortisone shot, not feeling good. But he still pitched admirably, and he got to a 2-2 count. And I don't know if it was a forkball or a slider. I think it was a forkball in the outside corner. I mean, it's right on the black. It wasn't a bad pitch. I talked to my dad about this. I said, Dad, it wasn't like it was some hanging forkball in the middle of the plate. He went down and scooped it. Yeah, he reached way out. He reached out. He had to go out and get it. It was right on the black. So you've got to give David Henderson, uh, you know, credit for hitting a good pitch. And he's as strong, he's as, strong as a bull. And he uh, hit it over the left field fence, and uh, that's you know that's the way it goes. So um, you can I can carry on a little longer, but that's enough of that story. But anyway, because uh, we tie the game, and and then we we don't put it away in the bottom of the ninth. We have bases loaded, and I and Doug Desensei came up with bases loaded off of uh, uh, Crawford, who threw a nasty little sinker, <clears throat> and and Doug comes up uh, one out, bases loaded, and Crawford jammed him. He didn't get quite enough of the barrel. He hit a medium, uh, a medium fly ball to right center, which was not deep enough to score from third. And I came up with two outs off of Crawford. I, I was sort of, you know, I was a little bit of a close stance. I had trouble sometimes on good sinkers down and in because I'm trying to battle it off to right center or up the middle. And so uh, there was a noise. The people were going crazy, and he missed badly with his first pitch. He threw a sinker that was out of the strike zone. I thought, you know, he's – he shook up. He shook up here. He's going to, he might walk me. And he threw another ball and the count went to two and oh. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to, he can't throw a strike right now. He's got nerves going. I said, I'm just going to kind of get down a crotch and a crouch and just see what I can do. Anyway, he just did not, he just said, I'm just going to throw a straight fastball. He threw this nothing fastball right down the middle and I'm kicking myself in the rear end. Because I'm thinking he's going to try and throw a nasty slider. He might go 3-0. and Now the pressure is really on him. If I would have been thinking a little more aggressively, I should have said, don't swing unless it's a cookie fastball, then rip it, right? I just wish if I'd have been in that frame of mind, I can see that pitch as clearly as I'm talking to you right now that I think I could have handled that pitch and done something with it. And then I just, I'm so mad at myself because I didn't do that. Anyway, he threw me a really nasty sinker the next pitch and jammed the heck out of me. And I barely got it to the back of the pitcher. He, just, he got way down on the barrel about the trademark and I couldn't fight it out of there. And, that, and so I pop up and that's it. But I'll see that pitch until my dying days. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do. We all have, we have certain moments where we're just like, man, just give me a one do over, one do over. Um, Great career. I mean, you, you're you're a six-time All-Star. You won four gold gloves uh, in your Oriole days. You talk about the one thing before I let you go that I wanted to, to ask you is, when you came to the big leagues, you talked about those the Boog Powells and the Brooks Robinson and the Frank Robinson uh, when you were coming up. Did anybody take you under their wing as a young Bobby Gritch? And then... Fast forward to when you're a veteran, Bobby Gritch, did you return that favor? Did you pay that forward? Uh, nobody really took me under their wing per se, but I will have to say I give a lot of credit to uh, 
Mark Belanger and Davey Johnson. Um, I'm competing for either shortstop or second base. Either one of those guys, I'm trying to take their job. But they were so professional and they helped me and they both just told me where to play certain guys. And they told me uh, about it, you know, like every night when I came to the big leagues, every single umpire had a different strike zone. It was really stupid. It was crazy nuts. That's why I love the strike zone thing to today is that I had to get a scouting report on the umpire we're facing that night because the guy's either a high ball umpire or he was a low outside umpire, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Belanger, whose locker was sitting right next to mine, and Davey Johnson, who was just about five away, you know, we would sort of banner about what's going on that night. So I, I have to say those two guys didn't exactly take me under my wing, but they were very professional about helping me. That was the Oriole way. That was just the Oriole way. It was a very team-oriented uh, organization led by Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson and Boog Powell. Boog Powell, when I first got there, came right over and he named me uh, Garuki. He goes, you're Bobby Gritch, the Garuki. So everybody called me the Garuki. And so uh, he said, hey, uh, first Sunday day game we have, I'm taking you out for crabs. And so uh, he did. I had never had steamed crabs before. I didn't know anything about them. And that was a real tradition in Baltimore. So Boog Powell and his wife, Chan, uh, took me over to a place called Bo Brooks, and we went out for steam crabs the first Sunday, Sunday day game we had, and I got introduced to steam crabs, and I've loved them ever since. But everybody was, uh, you know, nobody gave me a bad time, that's for sure. It was a good team spirit, uh, and I try to carry that on as a player later. When, when we had guys called up, uh, my last year in 76, I was single at the time. I had a nice house. I took in three guys for the month of September at my house. I said, come on, you guys are going to come out and live in my house with me. So uh, Bobby Baylor was one of them. Uh, Mike, um, oh, gosh, uh, 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 the left-hand pitcher who was a general manager for them for a while, and then one other player. So, you know, I tried to uh, make them feel comfortable. Uh, so that was my way of returning it. And I always did the same thing when, when I was with Anaheim. Um, I can't think of guys' names right now, but I always – always did that for young players because I knew and I remembered how tough it was to break in, how intimidated you can be. And you need somebody to just calm you down. Just, Hey, it's everything's cool. Just don't worry about it. It's just, it's the same game. And uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I always try to carry that on, but, uh, but I'd say Brooksy and, and Mark, Mark uh, Blanger and David Johnson were very professional guys with the Orioles. I love asking this question to guys that weren't in my generation. You know, I started in the early 90s. You ended in the late late 80s. Best hitter you ever played with or against from your generation? Wow, let's see. Well, the best singles hitter was Rod Carew. Rod Carew. The best hitter for batting average was Rod Carew. Uh, Reggie Jackson could carry a team for a week. I played with him in Baltimore when he came in during that free agent year. And I think he hit a home run in six straight games or something like that. And then another time he got hot and literally put us on his shoulders and carried us for like a week. When he came out to Anaheim, uh, he was a bit older. Uh, he wasn't the force that he was in Oakland uh, or in Baltimore that year. But he was still a presence uh, in your, in your, on your team as a leader, as a bulldog. Uh, but best hitters, uh, oh, man, George Brett. George Brett for clutch hitting. Uh, gosh, who else could I go to here? Name some more guys that you might think of. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. go. We'll, we'll go to the. We'll go to the other side. And you could play with or against him. 
that one guy either you don't want to face or you want on the mound game seven, that one pitcher oh, on the mound? A, could have been a teammate or could have been somebody you played against. Who's Bobby Gritch is the skipper. You got one inning to shut somebody down. Who are you going to everybody you've ever played with or against one game in the playoffs, one game. I go with Jim Palmer. Okay. Fair. I've, I've, I, I had a feeling it would be, it might be him. It might be him. Jim Palmer was, I think he won 20 games five times. Uh, he was the go-to guy in the playoffs. He's going to give you nine innings. He is going to uh, be in the game. He's, got, he's a great fielding pitcher. He's smart. He doesn't walk anybody. Uh, he was, uh, I think he's underrated. People don't realize how great he was. And uh, if I have one guy to go to, I want Palmer on the mound. And um, that's my pick. Uh, what are you doing for the, uh, with the Angels currently? What's oh, I just have an alumni go-to guy. Hey, I'm going to make one more comment about a pitcher. Yep. My favorite guy, my all-time favorite guy to play behind yeah. was Mike Cuellar. Mike Cuellar I, was, uh, was from Baltimore. Cuba. Yeah. Played with him in Baltimore. He won the Cy Young Award one time. If he could have spoken English, I think he would have won it twice, but the reporters couldn't talk to him because he couldn't speak English. That guy was amazing. I mean, I, I used to love when he pitched because he had five pitches, fastball, curveball, slider, changeup, and screwball, all five pitches. He could throw them at different speeds, and he could pinpoint where he wanted to throw each and every one of those pitches, and it was amazing to watch him pitch. He had a, and he had a big, slow curveball that took forever to get there. Uh, he used to drive uh, Dick Allen crazy in, you know, with the White Sox. Yeah. It, uh, he punched Dick Allen out uh, three times one night in a, in a real windy night in Comiskey Park. And, you know, Allen was just doing like spins, right? Like, you know, like a cartoon character going into the ground, waiting for that big curveball and big screwball. He finally, his last time up, he finally waited on a big screwball and he hit the ball over the uh, uh, over the, the Grandstand Pavilion in Comiskey Park, one of the longest balls I've ever seen hit in my life. But Mike Cuellar was really a magician and an artist. He was so much fun to play behind. Your time with the with the Angels now. Uh, you've got a you've got a you had a chance. You've been there with him for a while uh, to kind of watch Mike Trout grow up. Uh, so you've got to see him play a lot. And another thing I got to ask you, Shohei. <laughs> Shohei Otani, the last three years uh, from this seat right here, uh, I am absolutely in awe, Bobby. I never thought in my wildest dreams we'd see what we're seeing. I know he just got hurt with the, you know, he hurt his UCL, probably going to have to have surgery this offseason. Um, but if 10 years ago you'd have come to me and said, Booney, there's going to be this guy. He's going to come from Japan. He's going to pitch. And he's going to hit it. And by the way, he's not going to just pitch. He's going to pitch at an all-star level. Yeah. And he's going to hit at an all-star level. Yeah. I'd say you're crazy. You're I'd crazy. say it's too hard at the big league level to do both. You know what we have to go through as position players to play 162 games. It's a lot. Now on the side, you know, we have our pitchers who, who we don't pay much attention to, but they're doing their band work in between starts. Now, if you would have said one day, Ah, there might be a two-way guy that's a really good hitter, and he gives you an inning in the pen once in a while. I right. might buy into that as you know, as we go forward in in life, and and the athletes get better and better. But to see what I'm seeing right now, it's almost like I don't believe I'm seeing it at the yeah. level that he's doing it at. And the only thing for me as a as a baseball fan, 
is it's almost too good to be true. Like, can he be this good? And by the way, just throws in 25 stolen bases on top of everything. So it's amazing. Briefly, and I'll let you go touch a little bit on, on watching trout grow up and, and just what you're seeing uh, the last two, three years from Shohei Otani. Yeah. uh, You know, I realize that we're seeing something that'll, that I, I got a doubt ever going to happen again, but in this world today, I mean, who knows, but I tell you, I just don't think we'll ever see it again. Uh, We certainly haven't seen it in the last 150 years. So it might be another hundred years or something before, you know, and it, it, it takes a, um, like an incredible body to begin with. Uh, it takes uh, incredible strength, coordination, athletic ability, all the things. I mean, his body is, is a perfect athletic body. I mean, he's six, three or six, four. He's got about a, you know, about a 34 inch waist or something. His shoulders go straight up his second year with us. I was in spring training. And I, uh, I, I was in a dugout during a spring training game and I was sitting next to the trainer and I said, Hey, are we going to get him on a, on a weight program? Cause he was kind of slender, you know, a little bit. And, and he goes, he goes, are you kidding me? I go, what, what do you mean? He said, he's already the second strongest player on the team next to trout. He said, he lives in the weight room. I go, you're kidding me. So that was the second year we had him. So he's dedicated. He's, uh, built himself up. Uh, I think he's been real smart about building himself up because being a pitcher, you got to maintain your flexibility. So, um, I, I th- you know, I fear that Trout went a tad too much. You know, I, that's I, it's an, I, and I'm sorry to see that because uh, he's such an incredible player too. I mean, one of the best ever. And now it just seems that you know maybe he got too muscle bound. I don't I don't know. I I hope not. I just I want to see him have a healthy career the rest of the way. But uh, Shohei is not getting that way. And I think the reason he's not, because he is a pitcher. And so you cannot put on too much uh, bulk because you need the flexibility with your shoulders and arms. But two fantastic players. We've been so blessed here in in California to see these guys play. Even though our team hasn't been doing well, the ball game has still been extremely uh, interesting. I uh, still record every game. I go back in the highlights, even if I'm not at the ballpark that night. So it's been a real treat as an, as an Angels fan here to to have uh, Artie Marino do his best to bring two great players here. You know, Artie's tried his tried his tail off to bring good players here. It hasn't worked out. It's been unlucky. It's been nobody has a crystal ball. Uh, you know, I mean, who would think that Rendon would 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 have the problems that he's had after the three years that he had just before we signed him? Right. You look at the three years he had before we signed him. They were MVP years, and then all of a sudden he comes here and he just got a rash of injuries. It's just, it's just freaky. It's freaky weird. So it's not Artie's fault. It's just some bad luck, you know, unfortunately. But as I say, we've had Shohei and we've had Mike Trout, so it's been it's been great being an Angels fan just because of those two guys. Yeah, and the Rendon thing. I mean, Rendon's one of the the big reasons that the, that the Nationals won that World Series in, in right. 2019. He's come over. He's been riddled with injuries. Bobby Gritch, I appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, this is a lot of fun catching up. We'll play golf soon. I don't know when, yeah. but we'll play golf soon. We've been talking off off camera about uh, my golf swing changes I'm making, and uh, I, man, I, I just got to start putting better, but. To all you out there watching or listening to the Boom Podcast, I appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Bobby.